And we're at a moment where sort of all all contradictions are heightened, right? Byproduct of the crisis of contemporary capitalism. This week in class politics. Classic fucking boomer. Old new left. Maintaining the relations of neoliberalism. No! Capital. No! Capital. No! Capital. No! 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 Ideas are international, but we're from cameras. And we're back on Dole Capital. This month, we're going to talk about Australia's Summer of Rats and a federal election that feels like doing your tax return for leftists. My name is Ben and my partner in agitation, Jacob, is with me in sweltering Darwin. I mean, well, Belconnen, for one of our WTF discussions on this episode of Dole Capital. How are you going there, Jacob? Good, mate. How are you? Very well. It has been pretty humid, actually. It has been. It's been appalling. It's been very strange. Strange river. Not a lot of people realise that Canberra is not a tropical paradise. Not all the time. No, no. It is the place where anything can happen, but normally doesn't. Yeah. And right now, not much is going on. But soon, though, soon there'll be plenty of things happening this year for 2022. Uh, but before then, we need to talk to you, our dear listener, about supporting this show. Thank you for tuning in, and thank you to all our listeners and supporters who've been made this show possible, and in particular, our Patreon supporters whose donations help make this show happen, provide us with equipment, and help us um, keep going and Im- improve. Uh, please like, share, and subscribe this show, and you can leave us a review on your preferred podcast. But if you'd like to financially support us, you can visit our Patreon, which is www.patreon.com forward slash Dole Capital. That's D O H K A P I T A L uh, at Patreon. And you can, um, for as little as five bucks, you can, um, yeah, get behind us. Uh, as always, we're here uh, recording on uh, Ngunnawal country, so we just like to um, acknowledge uh, the uh, Ngunnawal elders past, present and emerging, especially any listening. G'day. Um, and, uh, of course, as always, express our solidarity with their fight to end continuing injustices for Indigenous people in Australia. So, Jacob, today, mm. right now... Mm. Is are we seeing the end of the mm. coalition government, the federal coalition government? Yeah. Uh, so it's funny. We don't. I think we try to avoid just talking about, like, sort of doing Ozpol speculation on the show because it feels like there's a million. You can listen to a million podcasts of like Canberra Press Gallery Jodos yep. and uh, you know South Brisbane Greens or various leftists kind of doing that kind of kind of chat, which is good, and I'll, I'll listen to it. But I just figured, you know, we probably don't need to do it again ourselves but it feels like we're well due for a bit of um you know popcorn gallery speculation i think so the vibe at the moment is i think that the the government's probably heading for a loss do you do you agree like i mean it feels like they're they're really not doing well i mean i hate to um talk about opinion polls and we won't we won't like pull the news poll up and and um compare monthly numbers or anything like that but there is kind of a vibe that um they're really on the decline and that they'll be you know, pushing the election out as long as possible and really de- delaying the inevitable. Um, so maybe before we start talking about Abo's labour, what do you what do you reckon the, the deal is there? Is it is it really like um, just the COVID mishandling? Is it the sort of series of corruption and um, m- you know poor governance scandals, the collapse of the um, national cabinet? There's lots of things going on, but it really seems like they've lost lost the sheen. Yeah, look, we're not interested in the polls, but. Um, we are seeing a pattern that had existed in the lead up to the election that Labor should have won when Bill Shorten was leading um, previously, the Labor Party, 
uh, which where we saw Malcolm Turnbull was turfed out. Uh, Scott Morrison came in and they had that miracle uh, landslide victory of, um, I think, a net gain of one seat in the House of Representatives. Um, what we're seeing is a pattern of continually bad polling for the federal government. Um, but will that be enough to see the end of Scott Morrison's government? I refuse to call him ScoMo because it just makes him sound like our little mate down the road because mm. he's not. Uh, Morrison's government has done, well, not not very good and uh, not good things. I think the chickens are coming home to roost in terms of how the government has performed with the interplay with the state governments. We're dealing with the COVID crisis. Uh, the couple of little jobs that they were required to do, like manage, quarantining, mm. Um, having a rapid antigen test in the country, mm -hmm. absolute failure. We saw their failure and their pushing to open up the, the Australian economy to um, to open more. Uh, and we've now got, uh, I think I was reading today, the deaths from COVID have surpassed anything that we had under the Delta strain. Okay. Um, yeah. We've now literally got a situation, I think more interestingly, is unlike last time is that you get an idea that sections of the, our ruling class are quite open to the idea of Labor um, getting in. Mm. And I'd base that on the nine media has become a bit more critical than they'd previously, previously been. Um, has been a problem for people who are progressive or left-wing, is if you follow the, the mainstream, or the state media and main, so-called state media and... Uh, Private media, the, the coalition have been getting a, f a free run for mm. a very long time, no matter how bad things have gotten. I think quite recently we've seen a bit of a turning there. Uh, even the Murdoch press is starting to run a lot more sort of negative um, uh, pieces, even attack pieces, um, seem to sort of, sort of been showing their heads up. Um, previously we haven't seen that. Uh, I think the we are seeing some quite high profile people from the coalition's front bench that have resigned. Uh, outstanding again. There's a bit of clearing of the decks going on there. Uh, we're going to see a pretty desperate uh, fight by the coalition members of parliament who are going to try to hold on to their seats and who will be praying that somehow they're going to be able to pull off a, another win again. Um, so it's kind of like a rerun of mm. the, the last federal election. But the difference will be, I think, what we've seen is that there are sections of big business um, and the various mouthpieces that aren't happy with how the coalition government's performed. Mm. And in that background, we're seeing a, an insurgent parliamentary Labor Party um, capitalise out of, out yeah. of that disenfranchisement yeah. from the big end of town. Yeah, just to pick up on that, um, I think that's one thing you said there is like really important is the way that um, what we saw right right from the start of the pandemic was that um, a really unified uh, capital sector in Australia, the capitalist class, around the need to first bail business out um, through um, you know programs like JobKeeper and um, business loans, which were obviously heavily rorted, but managed to do two things: they kept you know uh, liquidity crisis at bay, but they also you know were able to keep workers tethered to employers. Um, and relying on employers if they were going to be able to live through the, the pandemic through the JobKeeper scheme. Now, though, you go out, I mean, even in Canberra, I think, um, maybe especially in Canberra, I'm not sure, because we had a sort of, we didn't really get the the real real COVID lockdown feeling until, what, midway through last year. We, we've had it really late, and people are, have had a different experience here, which is hard to communicate to people from New South Wales and Victoria. But 
Um, even here, you go out and there's a real feeling that people have been beaten um, in terms of their resolve to adhere to restrictions, to, to accept pretty mm-hmm. massive impositions on their daily lives um, in order to contribute to this sort of collective project of suppressing the virus. Um, that seems, I think that's gone, basically. Yeah. that's yeah. There are still a few whinges and people who, like I saw a lady you know, down at Dan Murphy's yesterday chewing out a staff member because she didn't like the way his mask was fitting on his face, yeah. um, you know, things like that. But uh, in general, I think there's just a, a sort of feeling of defeat. Mm. Um, and that means that basically that, you know, that uh, goal that capital set for itself to... Um, weather that storm and get get through this liquidity crisis and um, get things back to some semblance of normal, you know, production, normal profit extraction has been largely successful. Um, the populace has been ground down and has come to accept that uh, you just have to go to work, you just have to accept getting sick, you just, you know, you have to send your kids to school. In fact, you're, you know, you're sort of um, a correct moral crusader if you insist on sending your kids to school, um, all this stuff, you know, whatever. Like, I, a lot of that I feel slightly ambivalent about, but um, that's that's sort of where it's come down, is, mm. is now the, um, the the lockdowners and the, the, like, people who are in favour of really heavy restrictions, they had their day, it's over. And now the, the sort of, um, the openers are, are kind of, have, you know, got, got what they wanted. Mm. Um, but the consequence of that, I think, is that that unification of capital during that period is, has also come to an end. And now the sort of familiar um, breaking up of different factions in capital has like come back, you know. So like you say, like sections of the media, um, because it's highly competitive and politicised um, environment for capital to operate, is pretty, pretty quick to start to look to pick favourites for the next election and um, that might bring us pretty nicely to this um, Albanese um, Finn review piece, where it seems that he's really making a pitch to certain sectors of capital, not you know, ra- as, rather than to the to the union movement, um, talking about a kind of new new set of accords for pro- mm. pro- uh, for productivity. Um, so yeah, yeah, I, I I think you're right there. Uh, one one of the key things that that defeat, if you like, of um, Fortress Australia mm. against the 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 pandemic. Um, we we can blame that or we can just lay that on the ground of the New South Wales government and the federal government led by Morrison who were determined to um, open the, the economy up no matter what. And um, it is interesting that we've got now getting those splits between uh, the big end of town, uh, big, you know, different business sectors and like. But what was insane about that, I think in particular, was the complete irresponsibility and that's been brought out. So a highly risky formulation that is that what we have now is basically a consensus that we have what you'd call what was being called the herd immunity um, idea that you yep. just let it go and you know so an equation was worked out about how many people they expect would die and they were, you know worked out the parameters and have decided how many is acceptable um, not great if you're um, uh, you know relatively vulnerable in any way vulnerable in any way or, or even if you're healthy there mm. you know we've had cases of people perfectly healthy who have died of the, mm. the, um, the current manifestation of the virus and now there's a new version of it so mm. we'll see what happens but I think my point is that the, the failure to actually deal with the rapid antigen testing is just quite amazing incredible mm. uh, in terms of trying to push for opening and then not actually having any way to actually deal with it do you think that's actually discredited the government because it was 
uh, rolled out as a kind of what do they call it common sense capitalism or yeah, can, yeah, can yeah, do yeah. capitalism can something do, like that you know it was can. really like explicitly this new solution of um, a kind of you know no holds barred free market um, approach to the distribution of testing yeah um, and of course we now know like pretty unreliable testing as well yeah um, with the rat tests um, has that you know s- stuck in the mind of the public and backfired for them that people are now saying I mean that it's kind of marred the image of this idea of can-do capitalism and that people are going to I mean it's it's, well, it's all like hard to talk about because of course we, we might say like oh the co- coalition's discredited itself by associating mm. you know like um, its brand of um, kind of neoliberal um state state led um you know rigorous individualism um but on the other hand like the alternative that's being presented isn't really an alternative like because the labor party is kind of offering something similar at least in terms of this fin review piece we've we've got anthony albanese writing about how labor's plan for wage uh, dealing with wage stagnation is going to be all about um lifting productivity and increasing profits so um it's sort of hard to keep both birds in hand yeah yeah look i i think with the the coalition's in a bad place and that's good for our you know in terms of where we're coming from um and i guess it does like on, on so many so many indicators in terms of inequality um things have gotten really really bad um even before uh covid hit there was a, there was something I was looking at um, the Australian Bureau of Statistics, according to a UNSW Social Policy Research Centre, they published a report that was based on stats from the ABS, mm. uh, data from 2017-18. Their findings show that pre-COVID, the income of those in the top 20% were six times higher than those in the lowest 20%, and that gap widened since 2015-16, when the ratio was 1.5. So. Their data then also showed that for the first time, average household wealth exceeded 1 million in 2017-18. However, the distribution of wealth in Australia was deeply unequal. The average wealth of the top 20%, that's uh, 3,255,000, mm-hmm. good on you if you're getting that, is some 90 times that of the lowest 20% at $36,000. Those in the lowest 10% held $8,000 in average net wealth and the bottom 5% held net debts of $5,000. Now, some stats there, but in contact, context, what we know as a result of COVID is we've actually had complete decimation of some industries, whether it was the university sector, which shed something like 17,000 jobs over the, the course of the, the crisis. We've had uh, hospitality gutted. We've had all sorts of industries affected in, in all sorts of our people. And then we've seen that incredible waste uh, in terms of um, the big end of town getting, making a whole lot of money out of it. We know that $27 billion uh, even by um, Josh Frydenberg, the treasurer, uh, admitting that there was, <laughs> said he knew that um, some would not need support. $27 billion uh, for one of those furlough schemes, which was complete. Um, in some ways, it helped, and that way it failed. I guess my point is things are bad on all the social settings, and mm-hmm. it's okay. The opportunity is there now for labour, and um, we've got that crisis uh, for for the coalition. What is labour going to do? I thought this was interesting, and maybe we'll, we'll, you know we'll play it ourselves. There's a bit of a contrast here in mm. terms of what the Labor, the Parliamentary Labor Party, uh, Anthony Albanese, is saying. Okay, so what you're about to hear is Anthony Albanese's response 
to Andrew Proben's question at the National Press Club last week. Um, the question being, who is Anthony Albanese? And I've included the cringing laughter from the rest of the press corps for your enjoyment. <laughs> Anthony Albanese is the uh, son of a single mum who grew up in council housing in Camperdown. She was an invalid pensioner. As I grew up, I understood the impact that government had, can have, on making a difference to people's lives, and in particular, to opportunity. I had the security because it was public housing of a roof over my head, so I didn't have to worry about that. Until there was a change of government in Sydney City Council, and a conservative group got control who thought that uh, the council shouldn't be involved in public housing. So I tried to sell my house. My first campaign, I was 12 years old. We organised a rent strike. We took petitions around to everyone. That was my experience of that that drove me. That was my first political campaign. And by the way, we won. <laughs> we got back in terms of a Labor controlled council led by people like Robert Tickner and everyone who'd been on the rent strike had their back rent written off too which was a good thing because it taught a lesson for those people who weren't part of the rent strike. <laughs> Solidarity works. And then, and then my, mum, my mum was crippled up with rheumatoid arthritis. So I lived by myself um, for a long period of time. And I'd encourage people to read Karen Middleton's book <laughs> down the front here, Telling It Straight, a title made, I hope, about the way that I engage in politics. I tell it straight. Uh, I live by myself. Uh, it's meant that I'm resilient and I'm tough. If people think I'll go and, you know, into a corner uh, during the upcoming fight, they're very wrong. They're very wrong. Just watch. It gave me a determination each and every day to help the people like I was growing up to have a better life. And I think that's what Australians want, very simply. And no one does it on their own. I had neighbours who'd cook me meals at night. Uh, so that, I got a proper meal. Meat and veggies. They looked after, but they had nothing. One of the things that I've learned in life too is that it's often the poorest people, the most working class people. One of the reasons why I'm a supporter unashamed of the trade union movement is that it's often those people who have less who'll give more. That's me. Okay. Oh, yes. Well, yeah, that works for you, does it? Oh, man. Look, no, no. <laughs> but but uh, I think that would work for a lot of lot of the grassroots Labor mm. supporters. That's mm. that's like, oh, you know, it's it's the um, it's touching those notes on on background and on disadvantage. And then there is actually that other idea of some activism going on, which mm. I think. Like, look, I think that little, as a stump speech, I think it's just, it looks fantastic, mm. um, really good. You know, I, I think a lot of us would like to hear more of that. Unfortunately, think, but, but it's yeah. a different, it's a different audience that to um, what Albanese has then done um, in terms of things. On the one hand, his leadership of the PLP has been um, very conservative in terms of what big reforms are going to do. Mm. And they're being very clear to the big end of town that nothing to worry about here. 
so yeah maybe just to start with the perspective of the of the like kind of grassroots activist um listening to that i think um i, I agree like the sentiments in there are yeah probably going to be very appealing yeah but there's two things one thing is <laughs> taking credit for a campaign that he was on when he was a 12 year old kid um which is kind of funny. I mean, I'm sure that there were some incredible people involved with that. And it's quite a radical um, campaign to be involved with. Yeah, no, it sounds right. awesome. Right? Um, I'd be fascinated to hear um, Albert's thoughts on um, a rent strike on some of his property, uh, you know, by the um, tenants of some of his own, you know, properties or um, the properties of his colleagues. Um, but uh, not to call him a hypocrite, I just think, um, like, it's all very well and good to talk about about that, but... Um, it's really the legacy of his own party that those kinds of um, radical acts of struggle don't occur today or can't occur today. Um, so, yeah, I feel a, a little bit resentful of those, some of those comments. But um, And secondly, um, I don't know, I think like the way he talks about how it was that experience that gave him and those people a kind of um, sense that they could make a better life than they had mm. um, rubs me a bit the wrong way because I think even you can hear in the tone of his voice that he knew that they had a lot, you know, mm. and that and when he talks about having a better life, you know, the reality is that the position of the Labor Party is that uh, social wealth should be built through private ownership. Like they still view that the, the property ownership as the ticket out of poverty, right? And the, the most important Australian institution for wealth transfer, mm. you know, and that's 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 true. I mean, yeah, it is right. And well, he doesn't doesn't say in that in that. No, segment. he doesn't say he's that. Talking but about, he's the, talking about public housing, which is yeah, but a good. But it is the it's a very but good yeah, thing. Yeah, right. and we yeah, need but, more of it, right? Yeah. But the idea is like what's implied is yeah. that um, the experience of living in public housing uh, inspires one to dream of private property ownership. Mm right in a way yeah. that like we can we can build we can build a better lives for ourselves you know? um and i i don't know like I, I think like they had a lot they had they had social housing you know like yeah. they had what they needed they had communal yeah. strong communal bonds that enabled them to take an action like that yeah um well, just, it, uh, isn't, it, isn't it sad i mean like that there's some dissonance for me yeah one one thing i would say though look i i Look, I don't have the policy in, in front of me or anything like that, but I do know that the the PLP is taking to the election probably the biggest investment from a federal government uh, into public housing for a na- national scheme. That that well for mm. decades that hasn't happened for decades. So, you know, good. That's that's a start. Um, as per always, often with these things, it's never enough mm. uh, in terms of what they're going to promise. Uh, I guess it's one of those difficult things we see being uh, from the ACT mm. where. You know, it always breaks your heart. Eh? The ACT is has got some of the highest rents, some of the most unaffordable rents in um, in the country, um, and we also happen to have uh, a local government that's spent proportionally more on public housing, is building more than in any other jurisdiction, but still it's not enough. Mm. Right? Um, and those, I guess, those are big. We then end up going, well, how are we going to fix this? And and that then goes into federal questions, like you're saying, man. Is is the um, what is the what is the what is the Labor government going to do to actually? Um, we need to have regulation in the housing market. Mm. Um, this this idea that retirement is and literally tied up on intergenerational, mm. you know, theft yep. or rent seeking yep. is, um, is 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 just unsustainable mm. into the future. Particularly when we talk about a, an aging population. Um, 
yeah, good luck. Because the other part of that aging population is migration, and it's completely fraught with um, you know how they expect things are going to do. But anyway, different topic. Um, Before we move on, yeah. this David Sligar tweet up. Um, I'd love to have him on to talk about it actually. Um, but he's good on this uh, idea of you know how we have like what mechanisms we have for wealth yeah. transfer in Australia. Um, yeah. yeah, David um, does some entertaining things. Yeah, I'm a fan. Yeah, yeah. Some of his stuff's good. I don't know. What would you call him? He's, he's not quite a class war social democrat, is he? But he's, he's kind of... Um, you reckon he's better getting there? I'd probably put him in that yeah. camp. Yeah, because he's, he's not... He's a social democrat. Yeah, he's not a democratic socialist. Like, And by that I mean he's not someone who is um, avidly there um, oh, arguing oh, for oh, well, radical democracy. Well, he's been nuked, apparently. He's not there. Oh, really? <laughs> ah, well, big hello there yeah. to David. But anyway, what was he? He was was the solidarity, free David Sligo, all that. Yeah, 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 yeah. Free the Dave. But yeah, he's also um, he was that funny guy who posted that stuff about um, bizarre argument about door knocking. But anyway. Oh, that's right. Yeah, Yeah, well, we didn't agree with him on that. That's true. Absolutely not. No, that's it wrong. His his basic idea there was that yeah, it's um, (laughs) you know, um, based on sort of research data, it's the least effective in terms of changing people's votes. But I think that doesn't even remotely capture the utility of door knocking um, in general. So could never seem we might be able to agree with him on some fine point on that, yeah, but yeah, yeah, in the yeah. general, I would say you couldn't make that into an argument that it's not yeah. worth doing at all. Um, I really, I come down with like the floodcast people on the utility of door knocking for sure. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, no, basically the point that he was making in that, what I was going to show you is that um, our number one, mechanism our institution for um ensuring you know um retirement income for people yep. who leave the labor force once yep. they're of uh, retirement age is property ownership yep. and what we should have is uh just a scheme where we we, we you know <laughs> pay people welfare to live once they can't you know, use the welfare state to redistribute income from people who can participate in the labor force to people who can't yeah there's a, there's no reason that we should be kind of using um these like rent extraction mechanisms to to do that because obviously it leaves a huge proportion of the people who similarly leave the Mm. labor force because of age and you know inability to participate for all kinds of reasons um, leaves them out of the social wealth Um, so we have this coercive extractive mechanism when we could simply have a you know cooperative social socially kind of beneficial mechanism um, through the welfare state so no no that's a good point yeah and then look i guess that is one of the I, th- I think one of the things about the tax return comment I, I have in, in, in terms of this upcoming election, and that's what it feels like to me. What I mean, comment do you mean? Well, I said at the start of the show mm. is that the upcoming federal election for a leftist oh, it's like doing feels like it's like doing yeah, your tax, man. You. Like, mm. yeah, you'll get it in on time. Yeah, look, at the end of the day, you know, we want to see a change of government. Mm. And it does matter in terms of there being a change of government. If you really, you know, if you're saying that... It, it, it doesn't matter. I, I think you really need to have a good hard look in the mirror mm. uh, in terms of um, why it's important. Oh, there's a big difference between knowing there's a necessity yeah. uh, to take the agents of the direct agents of capital out yeah. of power and, and say, you know, we can say putting in the, the labor aristocracy or the, yeah. you know, indirect agents of capital or whatever you like. Yeah, but yeah. to say that they're identical and that, um, that you know, it's... It's yeah, um, you're kidding yourself. I yeah, agree. Yeah. yeah, I mean, 
I, and I think coming flowing from that not point that it's is satisfactory. Yeah, yeah, we, yeah we it's never not. Say that it'll be satisfactory. It's not. It's not going to be it. The the policies they've put up, whether it's around climate change, uh, the the percentages they they sort of um, you know have put out there are basically a big compromise on what they think is more palatable to big end of town than it is to actually for you know people under the age of forty mm. who want to see you know zero emissions mm. things like that. Or if you look at a range of policies that we'd like to see changes, um, you know the treatment of refugees, asylum seekers goes nowhere near where it it should be by any sort of you know intelligent argument uh if we then go um to housing you know like yeah it's great first time for a long time but is it going to go no it's not Mm. um what we'd like to see is um big changes in the education sector like i think if anything like they're using the the tafe system i think it's great that they're talking about more money into tafe and um and a tertiary education but they're not challenging at all the idea of the market actually being um, the player yep. um, so they, they want to continue the idea of a deregulated, deregulated university sector um, which we know has just created all these problems we've got in the first place yep. which we're very much exposed by COVID yeah? or if we then go to the aged care Royal Commission um, yeah we might see a few more things change under a Labor government in aged care but they're not going to get rid of the idea that aged care um, should be a, a for-profit arrangement or that an elderly vulnerable person should be basically a unit of mm. income mm. for a so-called not-for-profit uh, or a for-profit, mm. right? Um, get the market out of actually looking after vulnerable people, I think mm. is our point, that any democratic social should be banging on about. Those things are all well and truly fall short of what, what, where we think a transformative agenda needs to be. Um, we then have to think about well, how do we, you know, relating to it as a tax return is like, yeah, it's not great. Like, I am not looking forward to. Thankfully, it's a secret ballot, <laughs> but I'm not looking forward to rocking up on election day to see the ugly mug of my local member. Mm. Like, it's like, yeah, great, you know, you know the yeah yeah the, mm. the academic on a sabbatical that currently sits in the seat of of um, are we calling it Fenner now, isn't it? I think it's Canberra now. Yeah, oh no, Canberra's um, Alicia Payne. Oh, okay. yeah, 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 we got Doctor. Hello, Doctor Lee. You know. Like, oh, yeah, of course. yeah, yeah. He's, he puts out an awful lot of books for someone who's meant to actually be getting in there to, um, you know, change things. But oh, anyway, well, he doesn't write those. His students write those. Well, yeah, yeah, <laughs> yes, yes. There's uh, non-actionable, non-actionable parody, parody. Don't sue us for defamation, please. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no. It's in, in my humble opinion. Um, look, fine. I mean, at the end of the day, I, you know, we go okay. Yes, we want to change the government, but but I'll, but I'll be, you know, where we put uh, Mr. Lee or one or a two or whatever. Uh, yes, of course, that'd be a good thing. But it will be interesting to watch, see how the other electoral forces go, how how the Greens go, mm. or the like. I th- I think getting in, we'll go back to what Labor's saying mm. before we start talking yeah, about sure. where, where the left and where socialists should yep. you know put their energies into um, productivity. You know, you read yeah. the article. Yeah, maybe I'll just read a. A little bit of this. It certainly wasn't the tearjerker, you know. No, um, slash, you know, let's really do, do side, some housing activism, you know. Yeah, I think honestly, I would say that you, that the observer should take this with as much of a grain of salt as yeah. Albo's sob story about his um, public housing upbringing. Um, yeah. Because in either case, they're, they're both kind of fairly cynical pitches to different parts of a sort of prospective constituency mm. um, and in this case he's yeah he's talking to what we mentioned before is that particular faction of capital that is now looking at things like the, maybe the climate crisis wage stagnation crisis and thinking 
uh, well, maybe, you know, a Labor government is what's needed, mm. not just in terms of the national interest, but in terms of the long-term interest of capital mm. in Australia. So here we go. Um, this is Elbow in the uh, Australian Financial Review. Uh, Labor will tack- tackle wage stagnation. Yay. Uh, let's see. Australians are a hard-working lot. From factory floors to hospital wards and office towers, workers put in. They get on with the job so they can look after themselves and their families. In return for their hard work, Australians expect fair pay and that their wage will keep, keep up with the cost of living. So we can get ahead. It is part of the social compact. But right now, wages are going backwards. Small pay rises. We get uh, more than wiped out by inflation, driving up the cost of living. None of this will surprise anyone who manages a family budget or spends any time in supermarkets and petrol stations. It really does seem that everything is going up except our wages. Since the coalition took office in 2013, wages have increased by 18%, but the price of beef has increased by 64%. Fruit and vegetable prices rose 22%, childcare 44%, health costs 33%. Uh, I'm going to skip a little bit because we're doing more price increases. Yeah, we know that. Yep. he mentions that uh, in 2019, uh, former finance minister Matthias Cormann said low wage growth was, quote, a deliberate design feature of our economic architecture. That's a lazy cop out from a political outfit that thinks governments have no role to play in managing the economy in the national interest. Businesses can increase wages without cutting jobs. Productivity is the key. If our economy becomes more productive, we can produce more from the same inputs. Both sides of the workplace equation can be winners. A Labor government will tackle wage stagnation head-on in consultation with business, trade unions and other levels of government. We'll convene a jobs summit to get these groups around a table and hammer out a new Australian productivity program that also includes measures to improve security of work and remove impediments to full employment. Cooperation and collaboration can work. In the 1980s and 1990s, Hawke and Keating Labor governments exacted real extracted keyword here. Okay, I'm gonna start start, 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 start this yeah, again. Yeah, yeah. Extracted. In the 1980s and 1990s, the Hawke and Keating Labor governments extracted real productivity gains by encouraging employees, employers and unions to work together. Profits went up, so did wages. Productivity growth has stalled on Scott Morrison's watch. Uh, the government's own productivity commission has reported labor productivity increased by only 0.56% in 2019-20, well below its long-run average. Mr. Morrison has totally ignored reform of government regulation to reduce the cost of doing business. Regulatory reform is critical to productivity. For many years before the election of the current government, prime ministers from both sides of politics worked with state governments and local government to reduce costs for business by cutting red tape. As Transport Minister in the previous Labor government, I worked with my state and territory counterparts to to reduce the number of regulators in the sector from 23 to just three. Streamlining the system created a $30 billion dividend for the national economy over the following two decades. The Morrison government has no record of regulatory reform. Indeed, it abolished the Council Council of Australian Governments, which since 1992 has been the key vehicle for regulatory reform in this country. Um, Just as a side note, I'm pretty sure state and federal Labor governments were all, uh, parties were all fully on board with the abolition of COAG in favour of the National Cabinet. But anyway, let's continue. Um, When governments work together, they can achieve much for our nation across a range of fronts. However, as we've seen during the COVID-19 pandemic, Mr Morrison's habit to pick fights with Labor state governments rather than working with them for national progress. I have no interest in unnecessary conflict. I want outcomes that serve Australians by 
that serve Australians in the way they live their daily lives. After nearly a decade of inaction on productivity and regulation reform, there is no prospect that the Liberals and Nationals will suddenly discover these concepts if they are re-elected. Australia needs a government with the ideas and energy to reignite wage growth, increase cost of, ease cost of living pressures and provide a better future for Australian families. We've already announced blah, blah, blah. Okay, that's about the, that's about the gist of it. But okay, so... Yeah, that's it, that's it. Okay, so cutting red tape for business... Uh, and increasing profits, increasing product productivity. Yeah. Okay, so well, I mean, let's take it apart. Really, yeah. the, the productivity bit. Um, mm. Look, any one of my generation or older or younger has, for the last forty odd years, put up with this wonderful term productivity, and it's been put about the this idea that the harder you work, the more profitable an organisation will be, or the more. Um, Resources you can build if you're working for a state enterprise or you know something that's national, you know, national enterprise. Um, that then that those benefits will then go on to be delivered mm. to the workers, or uh, that the resources and that revenue will then be put back into in, in, you know improving uh, ways that things are produced or services are provided or these sort of things. Now we know it's a con and if COVID has demonstrated anything it's shown that actually you need um, you need to just ditch that idea and, and focus on actually providing um, the service and providing the the means for people to actually interact in the economy to actually then be beneficial for, for themselves but also for, for everyone around them. Mm. So the fact we've got retail workers and, and many other de designations of, you know, transport, you know, now considered essential um, but for years have not been considered essential. Um, I think a lot of those old ideas about how, what is production, what is products productivity, what is being, you know, making a, mm. what is being, it, they're, mm. they're dead in the water. But the other thing in terms of the argument, there's, I mean, I'm not an economist, but that there's that argument about um, that we need to continue to have this idea of like gate, um, using the data around how we assess that our economy is more productive or not. It's kind of like, why do we need... Yeah, there are people out there, but radical economists, who basically say we don't need productivity. What we need is actually just to look at what we need. Mm. Like it's... Like the end, the end result is some... There is one of these arguments put around that, you know, the more... If you just completely focus on having this percentage increase of well, we've got, uh, you know, GDP going up by three percent mm. every year, whatever, you're also predicating this idea that we need to continually uh, exploit ruthlessly the the natural world, uh, and you need to ruthlessly exploit your workforce. Mm. I mean, w workers in this country don't need to be more productive; they need a f need a freaking break. Yeah, you know? they, I mean, are they need productive. wages. They, like, are they are productive. They have been. The whole, I think the yeah. real problem with our economy is that some people are yeah. fucking working themselves to the bone. Yeah. And some people aren't. They don't, you know. That's and right. that we need to better distribute the amount of, the amount of, you know, effort and sacrifice that that individual people have to put in to yeah, get yeah, the social yeah. wealth that we have. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I think there's like a fundamental misunderstanding of, well, maybe not a misunderstanding, but an obscuring of the nature of what productivity is in this whole thing. Yeah. And where where it sits in the business cycle. Yeah. And the short term business. You know, like, yeah. Because, I mean. What productivity is, is the relative rate at which value can be extracted out of, out of you know, fixed and uh, variable capital, yeah. right? out of you know, a given quantity of, of uh, capital and labour. 
Mm. And so what he's actually talking about, I mean, when you talk about the fixed side, it's like, okay, we can be more efficient with how we use our fixed capital mm. and that can increase productivity with the same amount of labor. Yeah. But he's talking about some kind of like new accord where we're um, creating some kind of, I'd say it's implied. I mean, uh, yeah, I don't, don't want to um, like, you know, read directly something that he's not saying, but what's I think is pan, what I'm reading into this is he's talking about pegging wage growth to productivity growth at some point. In some way and so what he means is uh fixing the intensification a, a schedule for the intensification mm. of labor of, of extraction of value out of labor um and yeah like you say i mean productivity yeah okay he says that in 2019-20 didn't go up very much but mm. it has steadily been going up for the last 40 years yeah right with a few blips around certain uh, you know crises where um you know it goes down briefly but steadily labor productivity has risen Yep. And wages haven't. And like, so before we start talking about a future where we're pegging wage rises to productivity, how about like getting some of that back, you know, some yep. of that share because wages haven't been going up and productivity hasn't been going up. Yep. So uh, employers have been able to extract more and more and more, uh, which turns into profits. Uh, and why aren't we looking back at the, la- the history of the last, you know, 30, 40 years yep. of our economy and saying... Uh, okay, we need to rectify the past before we talk about, you know, um, going and creating some flash new accord. Um, yeah, I, I, I'm so skeptical of this. I think it's um, oh, obviously, like I said, it's it's quite cynical and it's yeah. he's bending about a few like choice uh, buzzwords that certain sectors the of the managerial class, yeah. the people that read the, uh, the Fin Review might like to see. Yeah. They also, I mean, it's interesting though, like that audience though, that that's looking at that publication. Will, if any of them have got any idea, and of course they know how to look at some history or whatever. For, for them, they know the Accord was a bonanza time. Mm. You know, the first iteration of like when they move from the Accord into um, Keating's um, enterprise bargaining model, which was. You know, he admitted himself was you know, it went too fast. It was a disaster. Um, the idea that you could go from basically a, a, a top-down corporatist um, industrial relations framework mm. to then going, oh, you know, we'll just have all these little enterprises and you can do what you want. This is, you know, Hawk and Keating presiding over, um, you know, then just about like the, the halving of union men- membership in this country. And we've never recovered since. Um, big into towns very comfortable with that idea of, a, of an accord and I think you know as we were saying before they are interested and would be quite comfortable with what Albanese is saying um, but the other one the regulation bit I find is another uh, catch cry of the neoliberal is is talk about regulation and you know anyone out there knows that the minute they start talking about getting rid of red tape what they're always more often not talking about is getting rid of regulations that um, prevent health and safety problems from occurring mm-hmm. that, that prevent accidents occurring that prevents um just the distributors of products that go into making things from meeting safety standards um that prevent you know the checks and balances to make sure that what you've paid for to be built is what's going to be built and it's going to be of a quality that's not going to fall over um those are the things that happen with regulations. I'm not on top of um, 
with the Morrison government and uh, the Abbott government before then. There are attacks on red tape um, targeted at the uh, anything to do with the environment. Like that's what it's about. Mm. That's you know he's using the same language there, and that all again that all appeal to be again to town. It is very disappointing stuff for. Mm. for it, the isn't it interesting to too that if we go back to comparing this to that um, speech we played? Yeah, that. Um, his experience, you know, living on welfare and social housing, yeah. public housing, uh, that's, you know, doesn't lead him to, you know, sort of stake out a position, for example, explicitly promising to raise the welfare rates, which are mm. like appallingly low, like lowest in the OECD in, yeah. in, uh, for Australia. Um, like nothing, not, not even something non-specific. I mean, he wouldn't even say whether yeah. they would raise the, the rate of, um, what is it, job, job seeker or new yeah. startup. You know, um, whereas this is, you know, by comparison, uh, Albo's looking at the, the problem of, of, of red tape and yeah. um, the, the, the crisis of profitability. Um, and he's like setting out, he's going to have a job, a job summit. He's going to get everyone in the room and oh, we're going to yeah. hammer out a deal. He's going to get on the blower and sort it out. Um, like he's this, he's activated by this. Mm, mm. This is like you know led him to um, yep. really starting to make some big calls. Yeah. Um, I just uh, yeah, it's stark it's, comparing it, these two. It really does. Um, it does suck. And I, I, look, I, I guess the thing is we have to deal with Australia's electoral system, uh, which is based around. Um, our constitution is we inherited from the United Kingdom and the US. We've got a bit of a hybrid. Um, we do fortunately have preferential voting and compulsory voting at that compared to uh, the UK or the US. Um, the pre- preferential bit does enable us an opportunity to not just vote for the two um, you know, brands, if you like, you can vote for others, and there is increasingly uh, representation coming from independents and minor parties around. Okay, fine. Um, I think the, then the nature of that system and structure lends us to what we have, the way in which the ALP operates, and we talk about that a lot in the show. Yeah. Don't get us wrong; we are we we're members, and we do support there being a formation of uh, a Labor government or it's in the ACT or, or nationally or the like, but it's with no illusions. It's with the concept mm. of critical support. We want to see the, the best possible things for people that, that actually encourage engagement and democracy and being involved and fairness and equality, all those sort of stuff, right? But what you get in terms of when you're um, playing in the sandpit, that is the Labor Party, is you have to deal with you operating... The Labor Party is an amalgam of state branches and every one of these state branches have their own funny rules and some are more oligarchic and mm. less democratic than others so then when you by the time you get to the national you know the national conference and the deals that are done there the the, the photocopy of a yep. you might have a policy but it's going to be photocopied mm. and then by the time it gets the the dirty paws of the parliamentary labor party mm. we're getting a photo photocopy of a photocopy by people who are determined to have mine i've got my ass on lever I've done my time as a union official. <laughs> You're not going to get rid of me. I'm thinking yeah. of the Blind O'Neills of the world or whatever. Um, that that sort of you know those are the, some of the some of the the, the quality of uh, some of the people leading the PLP. You just shake your head. Mm. Um, who've never you know really stuck their heads out to you know improve things in a serious way for mm. people. But it's based on they've come from those opposing state branches and the deals that are done yeah. and. You know structures that are very fundamentally yep. under very rigid once you get rigid. to the top yeah yeah and so 
this is how I think you can actually understand mm. why is it that Labor, parliamentary Labor, the PLP, disappoints mm-hmm. is because it's a photocopy of a photocopy, which you know isn't great if you're you you want to go shake up and rage against the world and stuff. Like it's not great to hear that, but it's true. Mm. So I think we then get into like, well, how do you then? It doesn't mean we should just throw our hands up. Mm and be completely cynical about the process. It means we have to look at it and be objective about the way it runs, and we need to look at opportunities that are there for us to actually argue our politics. Yep. Yeah. Moving on now, um, there was a big uh, furor in um, Australian media uh, and politics, political media, last week. Australian of the Year recipient, is that, that's right, isn't it? Former Australian Former, of the yeah. Year. Um, uh, Grace Tame, mm-hmm. um, who was a... Uh, grooming and sexual assault survivor who's done a lot um, to further the cause of victims and activists in that space was somewhere for um, one of the pretty standard um, you know ceremonies and photo ops that a recipient of such a prestigious uh, honor has to turn up to um, and was um, pulled over for a a nice kind of smiley photo shoot with the prime minister and his wife and Mm. um, I think you know she wore her her, uh, sentiments on her face and um, Mm basically copped a shitload of criticism for um, being kind of rude or immature or um, something like this because she um, gave a bit of side eye and a bit of a frown during her photo up with the Prime Minister. (laughs) And I just thought (laughs) the discourse around this was hilarious. Um, Kind of both both angles on it were really funny. Yeah, you did, right. So on the one hand, you had all these, um, you know, kind of establishment... Uh, and liberal commentators, yeah, decrying the, the the outrage of this kind of conduct of a of a recipient of the Australian of the Year, no less. Not not really conduct befitting someone of that high honour. Um, and then on the other hand, you have I think a lot of like serious, respectable um, activists in all kinds of spaces, but including um, you know the f- feminist circles. Um, bizarrely coming out and being like this is such an incredible act of you know revolutionary activism and, and we have to take this seriously you know that now now being being uh rude to the prime minister that's how we're gonna like you know overturn the patriarchy and capitalism i'm not really sure that i agree oh, with okay. either of these takes um i did think that she was well within her rights to uh display her feeling about the the moment um you know on her face and in her body language and like i thought it was brilliant like it really captured the political moment um but let's not overstate the impact of these kinds of things Mm. like it's a circus you know it's like it's just fodder for the 24-hour news cycle um and for like the hot take machine on twitter and in like you know newspaper columns it's it's for the the, look it's perfect like the the conservatives and for the smaller liberals um who dominate what passes as our you you know media for our mass, for our mainstream, not it's not mainstream. It isn't mass, it's, you know, for our mass mass media. So for the corporate and state-run media, so the, the people who inhibit who have jobs in that sector and the people who have invested into this sort of you know how politics should play and all the rest of it, and um, yeah, it's just just clickbait for them. What was my starting point and my disappointment about it was that that little take. Al- Albanese spoke at the press club on the Tuesday. And then we had the Australia Day happen on the Wednesday, and I could understand it. Like as a when you're a Labor operative, like if you're working a party office, I mean, you can just imagine he's pulling the hair out. There he is. He's had this opportunity to kick off the start of the year. The Labor Party's doing well in the polls. The PLP, all the rest of it. There's an opportunity for him to get up and talk about. And what like what do we got? He was, did very well to get that nice sound bite about oh who I am and blah. 
but I was just buried within a you know two days or two days later about what like a an activist who's not particularly you know keen on the policies or the views of the our prime minister um, didn't didn't play the hmm. didn't play the smiley face game that hmm. that sort of you know you're expected to do when you're you're running around at these you know institutional hmm. things like. That, yeah, that was, that was shame, my initial. I, I think I it's like a shame. I think it's a real shame. It shows the you can't blame the twee, her for that. You can't, oh, I don't blame but, her but, at all. Yeah, but I, mean, but I wonder like whether there would have been something else like yeah, or if they would have just ignored it and there didn't need to be a secondary scandal to like, yeah. pivot to. Um, that I'm sure the press would have given pretty scant coverage to yeah. that press club address either way. Well, I would say. Yeah, I, I just think the smaller liberals out there just aren't serious. They're not not serious political people. Mm. At the end, they like to think they are, but. Mm. It's their own little pet, you know, yeah. views of the world um, that they can have their dinners with yeah. each other and talk to about. Well, I thought other, you know? um, so. Samantha Maiden had a, a pretty good, I thought, piece in um, just in like, her Daily Mail yeah. um, column or whatever, um, analysing it and sort of talking about how the um, the discussion over whether or not it's uh, was, was rude or petulant or whatever it misses the point that yeah. it was. She was doing it, you know, intentionally, with full knowledge that it's it, now is a, it's a kind of political statement. Yeah, um, and it's also you know it's an image that has resonance with a bunch of images for the, from the last couple of years, like um, the infamous uh, Cabago handshake. Yeah, yeah, you yeah. Know, things like yeah. that, um, and I suppose it's like yeah, she's right that it's it's not um, just a matter of decorum. It, yeah, it's a conscious political act. But where she didn't go, and my view is that if that's the case, then we're in trouble. Right, because it means it, it points to the, the way that our politics has been yep. rendered completely superficial. Yeah, it's become you know kind of completely aestheticized into this a series of images, and the way that the the psych news cycle and its tendency to reduce everything to an image or a soundbite still totally predominates. Um, that now, and that's that's what I'm sort of saying. That I was like a bit distressed to see um, really serious, hardworking activists acting as though this was the epitome of a, an act of rebellion. Um, it's kind of bizarre. Yeah, yeah, he's very strange. So, you know, like, all power to Grace Tame. I think she's done so much and she's great. Uh, but we're, we're kind of exposing uh, a deeper issue with our politics. Yeah. Um, and it's not just the, the particular space of, um, you know, feminist uh, activism or... Um, sexual assault survivors mm. activism it's it's everything yeah the way that everything has been completely reduced to the superficial level of um the display of affect yeah yeah well it goes look there's a great line from an excellent redskins song uh who are a fantastic band from the uh, early in the mid 80s in the uk <laughs> and they had their line was um take no heroes just take inspiration and and I, i'm often reminded what you're saying there is that there is that point there are inspiring people to do stuff and there are inspiring people who don't necessarily share our politics and that's fine like you know there are progressive smaller liberals that we go you know okay you know agree with that good for you for raising it but you know you can be inspired by it but let's not let's not lionize them let's not you know heroes there's problems with you know talking about heroes yeah um we have to always be clear that when we're talking about heroes we're talking about inspiring us and I mean, you know, us to actually be involved in our communities and our world and our workplace and, you know, involved in the struggle, yeah? Um, that's probably, you know, my gut revulsion to, to the gushing stuff is just this sort of like, what is wrong with you? Like, like this is, yeah, it doesn't necessarily help that person, nor does it, how is it actually helping um, the cause of actually dealing with the structural reasons why 
um, terrible things happen in in families and you know uh, in our in our communities. That doesn't deal with that. Uh, we're not dealing with the structural issues there. There's mm. definitely another show, and I'm not yeah. the person to talk about it. But yeah, there is that. Uh, but I also think it is one of those things when we swing back to I guess politics as. On this show, we want to encourage people to be involved in concrete things. And locally this year, I think um, playing on Twitter is not really it. Um, I think there are ways, you know, we've got an inquiry into the four-day week going on. Uh, I know the ACT branch has got a survey that's out at the moment. And we know a lot of our supporters are Labor, local ACT Labor. Make sure you do that survey, fill it in. It's going to inform their position that they take about having a three-day weekend, if you like. Uh, and it will be significant what happens with that because it will raise the, the flag as it is elsewhere around the country about around the world where there are trials going on about let's yeah. improve labour relations. And it's not yeah. um, that's not um, you know just a pipe dream. I mean, because the ACT government, um, what, what's the uh, maybe it's about eight or nine percent of the employment in the territory is the, the like ACT government yeah. sector. Yep. And so uh, if they were to make make a call on um, reducing. Um, the work week to to thirty hours or to four days. Um, it could it could actually have a significant impact um, on other sectors following on. Yeah, so that, it's that's definitely right. worth getting involved to do that. Yeah. yeah. So look, there is that. There will no doubt be people in the um, uh, the climate movement who will be doing more things this year, and we should be out there and supporting them and getting behind that. Um, I know that there'll be plenty of things that'll get thrown up. Um, and also, look, I'm excited about the fact that there are. Um, groups of leftists and groups of people in our, in our city who want to do more mm. want to do more things and want to talk more about more ideas and get out of a straitjacket of you know how you're meant to do politics so that's good those are the things to look forward to in mm-hmm. 2022 we yeah we're going to have this federal election and yeah it's going to be like you know filling in your tax return if you live in the ACT um, however you know there are you know you don't have to give them number one you know, <laughs> um, oh, yeah, but so you can always give them number two. You can give them number two. Like at the end, like yeah. put the libs last. That's where we'll put you. Mm. But there are some seats. If you're a, if you're a socialist, like I'm just saying, like there are opportunities that mm. you can yeah. participate. And I think more practically, I think we'd like to see more workplace organising, more mm. of a focus on that. Something we might um, want to come back yeah. to. This is an interesting point. I was going to raise it earlier, actually, mm. talking about this. You know, the uh, what what the impact of our preferential voting um you know single transferable vote system yeah is likely to have on the policies from the top or the behavior of the top of the parliamentary party and i'm like i'm actually i think there's probably a, a bit of a negative feedback loop there yeah where what you get is um you can have socialists or you know anybody who wants to see a change of government but doesn't feel enthusiastic about the labor party um, putting them lower in their preferences, knowing that the vote will eventually exhaust with them, or yeah. will end up with them, not yeah. exhaust. Um, and then, of course, because the way the system works, the idea would be that well, we can send a direct message to them because yeah. parties get public funding based on their first preference votes, yeah. right? Yep. So the parties are going to, you know, after each election, the Labor Party is going to look at its first preference votes and be like, okay, shit, we did win the election, say in this territory mm. election or whatever, we've, we've won this seat, but our first preference votes down. Maybe we need to start catering more towards these uh, views of people who've put their sent their first preferences to you know the Greens or some you know progressive independent or something like that. I don't think that's really the, the, the dynamic at all. Mm. I think what really happens is they look at that um, first preference number going down and uh, look for um, 
no funding elsewhere basically like the, they just uh, they see the, the drop in public funding and they go okay well then um, we need to increase our uh, private fundraising efforts uh, and so that's the other dynamic at play it's not necessarily you know a good thing I don't think that the answer to that is well you should give Labor your first preference no. um, like no. I wouldn't tell any of our listeners how to vote no um, I just think that w- we shouldn't um, you know think that this is going to be the way that the party moves left that won't happen um, through that mechanism you actually have to like get involved go to your local sub branch if you if that's what you want to happen yeah 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 um, yeah. you're dead like, right it's a ta- like it's a tax it up yeah, yeah. Oh yeah, and I think you, yeah. you, you're dead right there. There was some really, de- really depressing stuff put out by um, some socialists. I'm not going to name, you know, on on Twitter recently, which which I was really um, disappointed mm. um, because it was literally a view that oh well, Labor will get in and then they're going to disappoint. And it's basically sort of going through this like different sort of I don't know stages of you know like going to a funeral or something. It was but it's pretty much like you sort of see this stuff and it's sort of like they're not actually offering um like how how are we going to get a transformative program like how are we going to get see transformative policies affected now there's different ways to do it we know there's electoralism and there's also grassroots organizing i i don't think we need to fetishize it you know both as like you know separate and we've talked about this in the past but i we need to, to look at how we can cultivate an ecology and use the structures that we have available to us to put forward the politics we mm. want. Now, if I lived in the inner inner west of Sydney, um, you've got a different context that you're playing with sure. as an activist. Yeah, uh, in Canberra, it's very it's completely different in terms of how you're going to play. And I agree with you absolutely. It's it's not just like doing a little protest vote thing and then, you know, waxing you know not not doing anything to actually trans you know try to transform push those your politics forward is not really helping at all and people i know that people will listen to this if they're not already kind of on board with the idea and they they don't like the the idea because they've heard the bullshit about how we've got to reform the party later from within we can make change from within and uh, and they roll their eyes at that i understand that but what i always go back to something that our friend of the show matt burns is fond of saying i think it's a tony ben line yeah um that the class struggle runs through the labor party yeah um like it's not just um to be viewed as a vehicle for change it's a site of, of, of struggle yeah and um that's not something that you can get around uh, eventually you'll either need to contend with the labor party from the outside of it or from inside of it or, yep. or within it there'll be a contention within yeah, it yep. and that's the reality that's where we're you know that's where history has brought us um yeah, yeah. Uh, to this point look I, I don't want to be that aging punk sitting in the back of the pub um who basically like sits there sort of everyone's fucked everyone's fucked everyone's fucked oh everyone's terrible it's like it, nothing changed nothing will change unless you actually um have a go and i mean um being objective about where you're going to be most effective and that's not to fetishize mm. you know particular but i i think we've talked about this and we'll continue to talk about this it's really simple and easy to be involved in the labor party and it's not hard it's you know 
the hard bit is actually when you have an opportunity to actually change stuff. But by being a member and just paying that fee, you get to vote in pre-selections, you know. You get to vote in terms of, you know, the policy. You don't need to turn up. It's not <laughs> an onerous activity, unlike what it was or I don't know if it still is for, well, in the past, being a, in a revolutionary group was incredibly onerous in terms mm. of the activity that you were expected to do. You don't need to do that. You don't need to sell newspapers. No. And actually with library, you don't even need to go out of a branch of people you don't like. Like, you know, you can go and find the, the ones where and find people who actually have your politics and mm. you only have to turn up to a couple of things. That's it. Or well, really, if turn up to the stuff you want, um, yeah, it's just a side of struggle. Mm. And while you're doing that, well, you know, of course, yeah, we want to promote rallies, protests, you know, get involved in the streets. Let's formate, formulate a, an ecology where we support whoever's having a, a crack at stuff and trying to push forward um, transformative socialist politics. Yep. Yeah. All right, on that note, I think we're going to wrap it up. Um, yeah. This has been Dog Capital. Thank you so much for listening. Uh, my name is Jacob. I've been here with Ben. Um, don't forget you can subscribe to the show on Patreon um, helps us out a lot if you like um, but uh, otherwise um, you know sharing rating us on your podcast platform that kind of thing um, we've got a Twitter account it's at Dole Capital you can interact with us there um, we'd love to chat to you and um, yeah that's all we've got for this month so um, we'll uh, be back again uh, very soon and uh, have a great uh, February speak to you soon